Hi there, and welcome to another Classical Uncovered podcast, presented by the Melbourne Recital Centre. My name's Graham Abbott, and in our ongoing quest to clarify and demystify classical music for the ordinary music lover, this podcast dives into something which is fundamental to classical music. Form. Now, don't let that word form put you off. It's just another way of talking about how composers structure their ideas and organise their music. And in a lot of European music of the past few centuries, there are a few forms, or musical templates, which have been used a great deal. In fact, I wouldn't mind betting that a lot of the music you love is cast in one of the six standard forms I'll talk about here. Of course, we could spend hours on each one, but what follows is a potted summary which I hope will give you enough information to explore further on your own. Let's see what we can discover. Perhaps the most familiar form is found in vocal music. Strophic, or verse, form is used when a poem is set to music with the same melody for each verse. Ballads, folk songs and hymns use this structure, and in classical music we encounter it mostly in art song. Art song is usually labelled with the German word Lieder, literally meaning songs, and the most famous examples come from German-speaking composers like Schubert, Schumann, Mendelssohn and Brahms, just to mention a few. Art song in other languages sometimes goes by different labels, such as Melodie or Chanson in French, Cancion in Spanish or Canzone in Italian. English-speaking composers usually call their songs songs. Not all art song uses strophic form. It depends on the structure of the text being set to music. The factor which makes strophic form most recognisable is the recurring melody for each verse. There may or may not be a refrain after each verse, what is often called the chorus, but again, that depends on the text. The other five forms I'll mention here usually occur in instrumental music, from solo works through chamber music to orchestral pieces, and by and large they usually appear in music in the classical, romantic and early modern periods, roughly the 200 years from 1750 to 1950. A few also occur in earlier music in the Baroque period. Binary form, as the name suggests, is a structure in two sections, usually labelled A and B. Binary form was very common in the later Baroque period, roughly 1700 to 1750, as the form used for dance movements in suites, such as in the keyboard and orchestral suites of J.S. Bach. Dances like the Bourrée, Gavotte, Allemande and many others were structured in two sections, which followed two basic rules. The first of these rules was that the A section started in the home key and ended in a related key, while the B section moved from that related key back to the home key by the end. The second rule was that both halves were repeated, meaning that the listener would hear A, A, B, B. There are so many examples I could cite here, but check out the keyboard suites of J.S. Bach, which are nowadays usually called the French suites. Virtually every movement is in binary form, with very few exceptions to those two rules. Ternary form is in three sections, and we find music structured this way throughout classical music history and even to the present day. 
At its most basic, a ternary structure follows the pattern ABA, where the first section is repeated at the end after a contrasting middle section. This symmetrical return to the familiar, A, after something new, B, is so subconsciously satisfying to the Western mind that we often don't notice that so much music is structured in this way. In mainstream classical music, we encounter ternary form most often in minuet or scherzo movements. By the middle of the classical period, the years around 1760 or 1770, many composers were adding minuet movements, based on the elegant courtly dance, to their symphonies, sonatas and chamber music, usually as the third movement in a sequence of four. These minuet movements were characterised by having a contrasting minuet follow the first one, after which the first one was repeated. Thus, minuet, trio, minuet falls into the scheme A, B, A. The middle minuet, the B section, was usually called the trio, even if it wasn't played by just three instruments. This is because of a tradition in 17th century French music in which the contrasting B minuet was often played by two oboes and a bassoon, hence trio. The minuet movements of almost any symphony, chamber work or sonata by Haydn, Mozart and their contemporaries will almost always fall into this structure. Ternary form is often used in larger works like ballets. One of the most famous examples is in Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake, where the great A major waltz is cast in ternary form, albeit with a big closing section or coda added after the reprise of the A section. From the start of the 19th century, minuet movements were sometimes sped up to create a much more energetic and dazzling movement within a larger formal work. The term adopted for the sped-up minuet was scherzo, This Italian word literally means joke, but this doesn't imply that such movements were meant to be funny. The scherzo, though, did become the standard for one of the movements of symphonies or chamber works in the 19th and 20th centuries. The scherzo became standardised in the music of Beethoven, especially in his symphonies and string quartets. Nearly all later composers followed his lead, and many examples can be found in the music of composers as diverse as Schubert, Tchaikovsky, Brahms, Mahler and Shostakovich. From binary and ternary, the next commonly used structure is rondo form. The one characteristic feature which sets rondo form apart is the recurrence of one melody, usually called A, separated by contrasting sections, called B, C and so on. Rondo form in the Baroque period appears in some composers' concertos. See the last movement of J.S. Bach's E major violin concerto. And a great deal of French ballet music by composers like Lully and Rameau. The Bach example, A, B, A, C, A, D, A, E, A, is particularly clear, with the A section being played by the orchestra and the intervening contrasting sections featuring the soloist. In the classical period and later, rondo form often appears in the final movements of concertos. Beethoven's violin concerto is a good example, but you'll find it in many of the piano concertos of Mozart as well. Note, though, that in these later examples, the A section is not always repeated note for note. Sometimes it's shortened or altered in some way. So long as it's based on the original melody, though, it counts as an A section. 
A rondo structure may also repeat a section later on, such as A-B-A-C-A-B-A, or two different episodes may occur before the A is repeated, such as A-B-A-C-D-A. There are so many possible variations on this pattern, but the main criterion for a structure being in rondo form is that the A section keeps reappearing in some guise or other. One of the most important and widely used musical forms developed in the mid to late 18th century and dominating European music for at least a century and a half is sonata form. Used almost without exception for the first movements of symphonies, sonatas and chamber works, and often for other movements as well, sonata form epitomises the most important aspect of classical music in the Western tradition, development. Many musical genres such as rock and other popular styles and many non-Western musics eschew development in favour of repetition. I don't say this in any way to denigrate music other than classical music, but it's a fascinating point of difference which leads to very different expectations and reactions. Sonata form epitomises this idea that for a musical piece to progress, its raw material must be developed, must be altered in some ways. It equates progress with growth. At its simplest, and it's rarely this simple, Sonata form takes two themes and states them in a section called the exposition. The first theme, or subject, is usually in the home key of the piece, while the second is in a related key. The themes are linked and followed by transition passages. In classic sonata form, the exposition is repeated before moving on to the development section. Here the composer's ingenuity and creativity are on show, as the themes from the exposition are used as the raw material for development and expansion. In the development, the music usually passes through several keys and drama and tension are increased until eventually the music returns to the home key for the final section. This is the recapitulation, in which the two themes are heard again, this time in the home key, but not always as they were heard in the exposition. After this, the music is rounded off in some way to bring the movement to a satisfying close. This bald statement of the basic aspects of sonata form might give the impression that it's sterile or dull. Nothing could be further from the truth. The greatest musical minds have used sonata form as the vehicle for some of the greatest moments in European music, and there are many variations on the structure, as you might imagine. Some composers use more than two themes. Some surprise the listener with a false recapitulation. Some reverse the order of the themes when they reappear. But the basic, simple template of sonata form informs all these choices and countless more. Not including a slow introduction which might be appended to the start of a movement, the first movements of virtually every symphony from the late 18th century to the early 20th century is in sonata form, as are the first movements of chamber works and sonatas. It really is the backbone of the classical tradition. Finally, in this brief survey, I'll mention theme and variation form, another structure much loved by composers from the Baroque to the present day. Variations on a theme were, in earlier times, 
improvised as a means of displaying a performer's inventiveness and virtuosity, but by the mid to late Baroque period, composers were writing variations on themes, sometimes on a vast scale. The organ chacons of Johann Pachelbel in the 17th century are an important early example, but the pinnacle of Baroque variations must surely be the mighty series of 30 variations for keyboard by J.S. Bach, commonly called the Goldberg Variations. Classical period composers often used variation form in their chamber works, Haydn's Emperor Quartet, for example, or Mozart's Clarinet Quintet, and Beethoven made many important contributions to the form, such as his Diabelli variations for piano. Variations for orchestra also appear in the Romantic period, as in Brahms's Variations on a Theme by Haydn and Tchaikovsky's Third Orchestral Suite. A later and very famous example is the Enigma Variations of Edward Elgar, composed in 1899. Variations, in whatever context, require the listener to remember the original material on which the rest of the work is based, so we can better appreciate the journey the composer is taking us on. Sometimes the connection between variation and theme might appear tenuous, other times it might be quite clear. Sometimes the variation isn't on the theme, but rather on its harmony, or its baseline. Bach's Goldbergs are a good example, while sometimes the composer doesn't share the theme with us at all, which is what Ilgar's Enigma is. But like the development section in a sonata form movement, theme and variation form provides a composer with untrammeled freedom to indulge their creativity and ingenuity. These six forms, strophic, binary, ternary, rondo, sonata and theme and variations, are fundamental to almost all the music in the mainstream classical repertoire. I hope I've given you here a few signposts to discover them lurking in the music you love. I also hope you can join me for the next podcast in Classical Uncovered, presented by the Melbourne Recital Centre. Many thanks to Duncan Yardley for the technical production of this episode. I'm Graham Abbott.